Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of those at a podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, other half of the podcast. Kyle, we're hours away from Friday, baby. What's up, bro? Chilling, bro. I just had a nice little dinner not too long ago. Been watching the Bucks and the Ravens game. We got an action-packed agenda for this episode, bro. You ready to dive into this, though? But of course. All right. So, like I said, we've got a couple NFL games to go over. Uh, we're going to go over... Some of our featured matchups that include the Cardinals and the Vikings. Uh, we got the 49ers and the Rams, the Giants and the Seahawks, the Packers and the Bills. So those will definitely be some fun games to go over uh, once we reach each individual game throughout the episode. After that, we'll talk about Jamar Chase and the injury that he is going through right now. He suffered a hip injury a couple weeks back, and it's been lingering to the point where he's going to miss week eight. And he could potentially miss up to a month a month and a half based on how the recovery process goes. So that's definitely going to be a big hit to the Bengals for the foreseeable future. After that, we'll transition to some baseball news. Obviously got the world series between the Phillies and the Astros taking place. Uh, This is going to be a fun series. I mean, the Phillies, I've kind of been on a Cinderella run and the Astros. Well, let's face it. They've just been a dominant team so far in this playoff run after they basically just beat the brakes off of the Yankees in the ALCS. Kevin, sorry about that. I don't mean to rub salt in the wound. I, Fine. It, it just, it is what it is. You know, they just did. Hey, the bro, we lost. The- we lost. I'm not a, I'm not a salty fan like that. I'm not going to go out here and throw a tantrum and be like, my team was better. If we were better, we would have won. It is what it is. Hey, bro, you know, sometimes you, you lose to a better team and there's nothing you can do about it. So you just got to tip the cap and then, you know, keep it moving. Keep it pushing. Exactly. And then, um, we will update you guys with this Ravens and Bucks game. Um, as of right now, as we're recording, you guys will already know the, the final score uh, once the episode drops. But it's 24 to 13 in favor of the Ravens. Uh, just looks like the Bucks are just in deep trouble at this point. So they're on the verge of losing three straight games. But when this game does go final, uh, we will kick it to that analysis and we'll just kind of you know, just run through the gamut of that Thursday night game between the Ravens and the Bucks. But that's pretty much the agenda that we have for you guys. So let's not waste any more time. Uh, let's dive into this Cardinals and Vikings game. So this will be a one o'clock matchup on Sunday. Oh, we got the Cardinals. We got Kyler Murray. DeAndre Hopkins is back in the fold. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, this Arizona Cardinals offense could get kickstarted now that DeAndre Hopkins has been reintegrated into the lineup for the Cardinals. And then when we look at the Vikings, uh, the Vikings are led by Kirk Cousins. And 
to be honest, Vikings are having a pretty good season so far. They're sitting at a 5-1 and one record. They have a pretty sizable lead in the NFC North at this current moment in time. And I don't want to pat ourselves on our own back here, Kev, but we did pick the Vikings to win the NFC North, and they're definitely off to a good start. We'll see whether or not they can maintain that. But this is going to be an interesting matchup. we got Kyler versus Kirk. Uh, there could d- definitely be a potential for a high-scoring game in this affair. So this will be interesting to go over. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, with the Cardinals going up against the Vikings on Sunday, who do you think is going to come out on top and why? I mean, to me, it's kind of clear uh, and evident. I'm going to go with the Minnesota Vikings. I think they have too potent of an offense to be stopped. I mean, you have to have an answer for Justin Jefferson. You have to have an answer for Adam Thielen. Irv Smith is coming to his own at the tight end position. Dalvin Cook is one of the better backs in the league. And, of course, you have to account for Kirk Cousins is not playing in a primetime game, so that means he should relatively play well. Um, The Vikings defense has been pretty surprising for me. Outside of the Eagles completely embarrassing them on that Monday night performance a few months ago, it really did look like the the Vikings were going to be on to something good. I mean, if they don't lose to the Eagles, they'd be the undefeated team in the season. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying outside of Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins, there's a lot left to be said about the Cardinals. I know that they had a pretty good defensive performance last week with a couple of interceptions, maybe even I think a pick six or two, if I'm not mistaken. I really do not have too much faith in that team to go out there and do... I guess, like, do the impossible. I don't really have faith in them to go out there and perform, especially not against a team that's as stout like the Vikings. They're actually competing in all, they're competing in all phases, and Kyler Murray tends to force-feed the ball to DeAndre Hopkins from what I saw in the first game, and the run game has been up and down. I mean, obviously, we have injuries to James Conner and a couple of other players, but at the end of the day, I'm definitely going Minnesota. I don't really think it's going to be a close one, but then again, if Minnesota's defense does not show up, it's very likely that this could be a shootout like Kyle had just said. So if this were to be anywhere between 28 and 35 points for each team, I wouldn't be surprised. So I'll go with Minnesota on the upside. I'll go 35, 27, 35, 28, somewhere around there. But I got Minnesota winning and moving to six and one. Yeah, I agree with you on this one. I got to pick Minnesota in this case. Um, it's not to say that, you know, the Cardinals didn't have a bad performance last week against the Saints. I mean, they, they scored 42 points in it's probably one of the best performances that they've had as a team so far this year. So it was definitely nice to kind of see them kind of get back to their old ways. I know last year they got off to a really hot start, then they kind of fell off and, you know, you know, things just didn't work out for them in the end, but it was just nice to see kind of like almost kind of like a spark from the past uh, with the Cardinals based off of that saints game. But in this one, I mean, I got to go with the Vikings just simply because they've been the more consistent team so far this year. When I look at the Vikings, you know, with them sitting at a 5-1 record, they've definitely been impressive. Are they the best team in the NFL? Are they a team that could, you know, rival somebody like maybe the Eagles, the Giants, or maybe the Cowboys? Yeah, potentially. It's just whether or not that Kirk Cousins is going to be able to step up to that level where the Vikings need him to. And I think in this game specifically, I think he's going to be able to do quite nicely. Kev, it was kind of funny that you mentioned the whole primetime game element with Kirk because thank God this is not a primetime game because God only knows what we'd see from Kirk Cousins you know with him probably turning the ball over two to three times in that type of environment but I think in this game specifically I think he's going to be relatively safe I think he's probably going to pass for somewhere around maybe 250 275 yards passing wouldn't be surprised if he connects consistently with Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen just because I mean, that connection between Kirk Cousins and Justin Jefferson, I mean, it's just been lights out the entire year. And I wouldn't be surprised if Justin Jefferson, you know, gets somewhere between 
I'd say maybe 10 to 12 targets. I mean, hell, he could probably get maybe 15 targets based on the game plan for Minnesota. But overall, I mean, when I look at their offense, you know, they're loaded. I mean, Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, you got Dalvin Cook. Dalvin Cook has been solid this year. Has he really been like a top performer in the running back group? Not necessarily compared to like the rest of the league, but he's been very consistent. And as long as he's able to effectively rush for somewhere in between about, let's say, 75 to maybe 125 yards rushing, that's definitely something that I could expect in this game. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, he gets some check downs from Kirk in this game as well, just because he's that he could be utilized in that purpose with the way that the Vikings run their offense. And really the big thing for me is whether or not that they're going to be able to contain Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray is somebody that you have to respect his ability to escape out of the pocket, be able to make plays with his feet. And now that he has DeAndre Hopkins back in the fold, wouldn't be surprised, you know, if they really go back into that well where Kyler's hitting up DeAndre consistently. You know, I'm not talking, you know, 10, 11 targets. Maybe it could be as high as 15 just because, you know, DeAndre missed those first six games and they definitely need to get him back into the fold as soon as possible just to get up to speed. But overall, man, I just think that the Vikings have the pieces here to be able to knock off the Cardinals here. I think it is going to be a relatively decent game as far as the scoring is concerned. I don't know how far uh, the margin is going to be, but if I had to say, I say the Vikings win this one by like a one possession game. So I'll just kind of leave it at that. But the Vikings get the dub. They would improve the six and one in the year. And that's just kind of how I see it playing out for them. Yeah. I mean, if this game was, I wouldn't, I don't want to say like at a later point in the season when Hopkins has a little bit more underneath him, if Kyler Murray can show me a little bit more consistently that he's able to perform week in and week out like he did last week, I'd say this can be potentially a lot more competitive. But like you said, with the Vikings being the more consistent team, with the Vikings being a better offensive output of a team, I think that this game is just going to favor Minnesota. If Arizona comes out of left field and really upsets them, I think that that kind of signifies blatantly that DeAndre Hopkins is the the heart and soul of that offense. And that's pretty much the only thing you can say because they weren't putting up numbers like this prior to him coming back. So we'll look at it and kind of carry it as it comes along. But I know that we definitely have uh, another couple games we want to get into, at least some games that could be potentially a lot more competitive. Oh, yeah. And uh, the next one is actually going to be an NFC West battle that's going to take place between the 49ers and the Rams. So when you look at the Rams, when you look at the 49ers, Kev, I think it's safe to say that they've largely been inconsistent this year. I mean, we're looking at the 49ers. They've lost two straight games. They're sitting at a 3-4 and four record. The Rams have been literally up and down the entire season. We don't know really what we're going to get from them just based off of the fact that at sometimes they've looked decent offensively, and then there have been times where they've looked just inconsistent and just slow. They just look like they're just like one step behind uh, in some of these matchups. So when I look at this matchup i mean the 49ers have to get back into the win column knowing that they've lost two straight games that the rams are trying to get back uh, over 500 sitting at a three and three record you know if they were to win here it would get them to a four and three record so both teams really need to win here to kind of dictate how they're going to transition into the second half of the year so kevin to kick this one to you when it comes to this nfc west battle that's going to take place between the 49ers and the rams who do you think is going to come out on top and why See, to me, this is a hard one, and I know that I'm going to pick the 49ers, but for the sake of this fact that the 49ers have gone on a two-game losing streak, they looked to be one of the stronger teams in the league, and then they go and get blown out by Kansas City by 
what, 21, 22 points last week. They allowed 44 points to Kansas City as a whole. They lose to a bad Falcons team. And you're kind of like, wait a second. Wasn't this team, when Jimmy got in there, supposed to be all that? Wasn't this team supposed to be one of the best defenses in the league? I understand that Matt Stafford is not Pat Mahomes. I understand that this Rams team is not the Chiefs. But that can leave a bad taste in a defense's mouth. That could leave a bad taste in, a, in, in an overall team's mouth. Like, damn, you know, like... We were we were we were pretty badass a couple weeks ago, and now we're sitting here and we're we're struggling. They go and they trade for CMC. I think Debo Samuel's battling an injury this week as well. Jimmy Garoppolo has played good, but not perfect. And you know, you kind of leave this to a toss up. The only reason I'm going to go with San Francisco is because history shows that Jimmy Garoppolo is seven and zero against the Rams in his career as long as he's been the starter in San Francisco. And then I just. The Rams are about to go out and trade Cam Akers. He's not practicing with the team. Obviously, the offense outside of Cooper Cup, uh, when it comes to the Rams, has been very stagnant and inconsistent. The defense has shown flashes, but not consistently, just like the offense. Um, I mean, Jalen Ramsey has been shown that he could be vulnerable this year as well. So I'm going to go with the 49ers as my safe pick. I have my gut feeling that the 49ers are going to win, so I'm kind of like in the same boat here. But... I think this one could be a lot closer than their previous games have been just because, like I said, the 49ers are in a slump. The Rams are coming off a bye. They're pretty rested. And obviously, at the end of the day, this is a division matchup. Both teams know each other very well. So I think the Rams are going to look to break that streak. Sean McVay is due for one of those big offensive creative games. And I'm hoping that Allen Robinson and Tyler Higby can be incorporated back into this offense a little bit more on a proactive basis as opposed to we're down by 10, 15 points. You know, we, we have to force feed everybody because they're doubling Cooper. You get him involved early, get him into a rhythm. Obviously, Cooper Cup's going to get his targets. There's no getting away from that. But I really do think that you need to take advantage of some of the other weapons that you have. Because let's face it, this Rams team did this Rams team did win a Super Bowl last year, and they replaced Odell Beckham with Allen Robinson. I know that depending on who you ask, that could be an upgrade, that could be a downgrade. But at the end of the day, Allen Robinson is there. You paid him a lot of money. You got to use him right. So. They need to establish the line of scrimmage. They need to be able to get to the passer in terms of getting Jimmy Garoppolo because he was sacked five times last week. So if the Rams can take advantage and at the same time, if they can capitalize and get that offense back into a rhythm, I think this game can be a lot more uh, competitive than we had originally anticipated. But I'm going with San Francisco in a nail biter, 21-17, maybe even 20-17, to something around there. Yeah, Kev, to me, this is kind of a make or break game for both teams here because, I mean, like I said in the intro, you know, you're looking at both teams, three and four, three and three. This is a must-win game as far as I'm concerned for both teams here. And I would say like, when it comes to the 49ers, there has to be a huge sense of urgency for them because if they drop this one, I mean, they're sitting at a three and five record potentially eight weeks into the year. Now, granted, we would have a whole second half of the season to go, but man, eight weeks in, you do not want to be sitting at a three and five record and the same applies to the Rams if they were to drop this one they would drop to a three and four record so I think this really kind of raises the stakes for both teams here but Kev I'm gonna go with the 49ers here on this one and I don't have a lot of faith in this pick but knowing how they've looked the last couple of weeks they need to really step it up and I think this will be the game where they finally get back into rhythm because let's face it the way that they played against the Chiefs last week Definitely not the best performance that they had. I mean, it was relatively close at halftime. And then in the second half, I mean, they just got smoked by the Chiefs. And Patrick Mahomes just lit it up against that, what was considered a vaunted defense with the 49ers. Because let's face it, you know, before that game took place last week, the 49ers had a top five defense. You could say arguably they had a defense that was comparable with the Bills as far as being the best defense in the league. And then they go give up almost 45 points to the Chiefs. Nothing to be ashamed of because it is Patrick Mahomes. It is Andy Reid. But 
still like that's a tough film session the next day when you got to look at you know the chiefs just absolutely destroying you and i think you know they're going to use those mistakes that they made against the chiefs last week and they're going to use it against the rams as far as to be able to get into a motivational mindset to get back into the win column because I think this is a team that they could have a really good chance to knock off this weekend, despite the fact that they have to go on the road. The Rams have been literally up and down the entire season. And even in their wins, they have not been that great. You know, when I look back to the Panthers game that they had a couple of weeks ago, granted they did win by 14 points, but it's like the Panthers are one of the worst teams in the NFL. And I understand that, you know, the Rams offense, they were able to put up 24 points, but you know, when it comes to this Rams offense, this Rams offense should be putting up somewhere around 30 to 35 points a game. And they've really failed to do that outside of the Falcons game, which took place about a month ago. And you could tell that Matt Stafford, just the chemistry that he has with the offense this year is just not the same compared to last year. And you can maybe blame that on personnel. You can blame that on the fact that he's getting sacked tremendously throughout this year. He's one of the highest sacked quarterbacks in the league through the first seven weeks of the year. And if they want to be any way viable in the NFC this year, they're going to have to fix that sooner rather than later. But I've just not sold on this Rams offense yet. And knowing that the 49ers gave up almost 45 points to the Chiefs last week, I think we're going to get an A-plus performance from the 49ers here. That's just how I see this one playing out on the defensive side of the ball. And then when it comes to the 49ers offense, we don't know about Debo's uh, status yet. He could be playing. He hasn't really been practicing this week at all. So... He could be a game-time decision when it comes to Sunday. Uh, we'll see how it plays out throughout the weekend. But even if he weren't able to play, I still got to see what the 49ers are going to do with Christian McCaffrey. He got his first little taste uh, playing running back with them last week. I imagine, you know, with a full practice underneath, a full week of practice underneath his belt, he's definitely probably a little bit more comfortable with the offense. Still a little bit behind, but I imagine we'll probably see an increased workload for him. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some big games from uh, from Kittle, from Brandon Ayuk. Like, you know, these guys are going to have to step up potentially if Debo weren't able to go. And then Jimmy's got to be better than he was last week. You know, there were some plays that Jimmy left out in the field last week against the Chiefs. You know, probably got to see those in that film session this past week. And, you know, going up against the Rams defense, this, this Rams defense has been shaky at times. And it has been, been kind of a point of emphasis this year where there have been times that this team defensively has gotten burnt and even in the first matchup where you know both these teams went up against each other the 49ers kind of gave it to them so there's a very good chance that the 49ers could replicate that type of performance going into this one and I think they are going to win this one in a relatively close battle just because these divisional matches are always tricky to pick but if I had to put a score on it I'm going to say the 49ers win this one by the score of let's say 27 to 21 I think it's gonna be a one position game when it's all said and done but I think the combined effort of Jimmy Garoppolo, Christian McCaffrey, and then probably Brandon Ayuk offensively, and then them potentially forcing some turnovers against Matt Stafford and that Rams offense, which has been shown to be inconsistent at times this year. I think that's going to be the winning formula for them in this one, and it would get the 49ers back to a 500 record, 4-4 four and four at the Week 8 mark, and they definitely need this one as far as I'm concerned because if they fall back to 3-5, and five, you know, they definitely have an uphill battle to get back to at least a decent spot in the NFC before the season does come to an end. So I'm going with the 49ers in this one.
It's going to be a good game. Again, division games are always good, but NFC West divisional games, along with the AFC West, you can always atone for it being a good show. Now, if it's another blowout, I have no faith. If the Rams get blown out again, honestly, that's it's kind of chalked. But mm-hmm. we'll kind of see what happens. This next game, high key, is the game of the week for me yeah. because it's two teams I did not expect to be in the positions that they're in. And Kyle, I'm going to take this one because I, I got to hear your thoughts. Dude, the G-Men are 6-1. and one. The Seahawks are 4-3. and three. I, I mean, you could not tell me between these two teams that they would have 10 wins combined going into Week 8. So, Kyle, do you think that the Giants' hot streak can continue, or will, Seattle, or will Seattle's Cinderella story find a way to continue at home? Kev, this is a toss-up for me because I could really see both teams winning, and I've been surprised by both teams this year. I'm going to take a little bit of a hot take here. I'm going with Seattle here. And I understand that that could be a tough pick knowing that uh, DK Metcalf is going to be missing some time. So uh, there's going to be a big emphasis on, you know, really trying to maximize their offensive potential with the pieces that they have available. But man, I, I got to say it. I've been really impressed by Geno Smith this year. I, I've watched Geno Smith for years at this point. I've, I'm a diehard Patriot fan. And I don't remember him playing this well when he was a member of the New York Jets, when he was getting his career started. But man, when you look at Geno Smith this year, he has been nothing short of phenomenal. When you look back to that game last week against the Chargers, I thought he was solid. Outside of the one interception that he had early on in the first half, I thought he was money. He was effective. And not only that, they were able to get good contributions from their run game as well. With Kenneth Walker getting over 150 yards on the ground, had two touchdowns in that game. He was extremely effective in that capacity. And not only that, their defense has been surprisingly decent this year. I wouldn't say it's like top echelon or upper echelon where, you know, they're like a top five defense, but this defense is opportunistic and they're able to bring effective pass rushes and force turnovers. They were able to do that effectively against the chargers last week where again, they were kind of like ball hawking in a couple possessions against the chargers. So there's a very good chance that, the Seattle defense could be able to force some turnovers against Daniel Jones because let's face it, Daniel Jones, when you look at his past, has been known to be turnover prone. And he has quite a case of the fumbles throughout his career early on. And if Seattle is able to bring effective pass rushes early in this game, there could be a potential for the Seahawks to be able to get a turnover early, flip the field, and then maybe potentially score some points off of it. And, you know, I think this game is really going to be just, I think this game is going to be really focused around momentum because I think it's going to be relatively close early on. You know, both teams are probably going to trade points early in the first half. And then honestly, I just see Seattle kind of ramping it up in the second half after halftime. I think they're going to make second half adjustments that are going to be beneficial for them in that second half, in the second half against the Giants. And I think for me, you know, I understand that they're facing some injuries and that's definitely something that's going to be a focal point for Seattle here, but I think they're going to be able to overcome them this week. I look at the Giants. The Giants have been one of the best stories that we've seen in the NFL so far this year. The one thing that I like about the Giants is that their defense has been solid and Saquon Barkley and that Giants offense, they've been consistent this year, but I think they're going to run into a situation where they got to travel to the West Coast. And I think, you know, I think the elements are probably going to, get them in this game a little bit, knowing that it's like a a three-hour time difference going from New York to Seattle here. And I I just think that, by and large, 
I think the Giants are probably going to miss some plays here. I think there's a chance that they may turn the ball over a couple times, and I think that's going to set them behind in this game. And I, I think Seattle's going to punish them for it. So the way that I see this game playing out, like I said, could be close in the first half, but I think the Seattle really kind of ramps it up in the second half, and they kind of pull away from the Giants towards the end of the game. But I do think that this game is going to be relatively close when it's all said and done. I do believe this game is going to be a one-possession game when it's settled. But I'm going with Seattle here. I think there's a very good chance that Seattle's going to be able to put up some points here. I don't know if they're going to crack 30 because that Giants defense is nothing to slouch on. This this Giants defense is competitive. And they've been a force to be able to hold teams consistently around 15 to 20 points in the games that they've been in. So, you know, this is not going to come easy for Seattle. But if I had to say... I think Seattle wins this one, one possession game. I'm going to say they win this one by the score of like 24 to 20 in this one. It's just, I just don't have a lot of faith that Daniel Jones and that offense is going to be able to put enough points on the board against Seattle. If they do, I think it's just where Saquon's going to pop off or 150 yards rushing. He might get like a tut or two, but I do think that Seattle's going to be able to limit him to a certain extent to keep him under 100 yards rushing. And I think that's going to be the defining factor in this game defensively for Seattle on top of the turnovers that they're going to potentially get in this game. So that's just how I see this one playing out. Dude, I got to go to the opposite. I'm going with the G-men, man. I think that the travel's not going to make a difference. They already flew out to London this year and they got the dub against obviously what I would assume is a better matchup in terms of a tougher opponent because of Green Bay at the time being one of the better teams in the NFC East, mm. uh, excuse me, in the mm. NFC mm. at the time, at the nah. time when they, when that was the first game they played, Green Bay was three and one when they beat Green Bay. Nah. They were coming off of a, a triple overtime game against the Pats. They were not mm. four and three. Triple. They were not going back and forth in certain games. When Green Bay lost to the Giants, they were three and one. Yeah, but even some of their wins, you could look back to some of the wins that the Packers had. They were kind of ugly wins. They, they I'm not denying that, but in, in terms of quarterback presence, would you take Geno Smith over Aaron Rodgers? Based off of this season? In general, are you, are you taking Geno over Aaron? Would you have assumed that that would have been the outcome? Because you picked Green Bay to win that game. I did. I did. But... With and the it was way, an upset 100 but, hours but, away. But with the issues that the Packers have been facing this year, I mean, let's face it. When you look at Geno Smith compared to Aaron Rodgers this season, I understand this is going to come off as a hot take. But Geno has been take. better. Geno's been better than Aaron Rodgers this year. And I understand Aaron Rodgers and that Packers offense have their issues. There's no denial of that. But what I see as far as effectiveness is concerned, Geno Smith is a better quarterback than Aaron Rodgers this season this in particular. This season? This yes. season. And guess what? I could apply the same standard to Geno Smith over Daniel Jones as well. So as far as the quarterback matchup, I think that Geno still has the advantage here. But I'll let you continue. I'm going to go with the fact that I got Danny Dimes because of his mobility. I think they have the better running back, obviously. Saquon's, Saquon Barkley is him, period, point blank. The man is back. I just saw a hype video, a clip video, whatever the hell of him going through his rehab over the last couple of years. That shit was crazy. I'm always going to go with the Bronx guy anyway. So I got the Giants because I feel like they're out to prove people wrong. They're out to show people that this is not a fluke. Everyone's going around saying, oh, their schedule hasn't been tough. Oh, they're not really competitive as opposed to the Eagles and the Cowboys, blah, blah, blah. People fail to realize they played the Cowboys tough and they lost by a single possession. So they act like it was a blowout. And then they've beaten every other team like you're supposed to. Whether or not the schedule is weak, you got a dub. 
So this is going to be a good test for them for sure because Seattle's offense is absolutely humming. I'm not taking away from Geno. I've been a big Geno supporter throughout this season. I've even made points to say that Geno has been better than Russell Wilson. And of course, Kyle just made the point, very valid point, that he could potentially even be better than Aaron Rodgers. And I agree with that point. But what I'm this saying season, is... This season. This season. This season. That's what I'm saying. This season. What I'm saying is I believe that the Giants are better than what people are giving them credit for. I think that the whole distance of where they're going to be playing, the weather and all that, so the Giants have already done the travel. The Giants have already dealt with adversity being in another country. So let's not put it aside like, you know, it's they, they've, they haven't traveled this season across the country or across, across the state or whatever. They've gone as far as you can go in terms of in the NFL. So I think playing on the road... They're no stranger to that. I think that the Giants have proven that they can do it with a lack of a receiving core. Kadarius Tony just got traded. He wasn't playing. Kenny Galladay has been pretty uh, pretty banged up all season. He's been useless. Uh, what? What's the guy? Wardell? No, Wardell is freaking Steph Curry. Well, Wendell Robinson from Kentucky. Yeah. He's yeah. been their only consistent guy aside from Darius Slayton. So the Giants are, are dealing with everything that they have on their plate, and they're still finding ways to win. So that's why I'm going to pick them because they've proven – Week in and week out, they can be competitive. They're winning. Brian Dable's changed the culture. The defense is playing very well. They're getting healthy at the right time. Again, when Saquon Barkley is leading the league in all-purpose yards for running backs, I truly believe that that is a game-changer. And unless the Seahawks can slow him down, I do not see them, unless it's a shootout, like I said, I don't see the Seahawks keeping up with the Giants. I'm hoping it's going to be a good game like we're all wanting it to be. But at the end of the day, I'll take the Giants in a close one. And I think it'll be around the score of maybe 24-21, something of that magnitude. It's going to be a good one. But I got the G-Men moving to 7-1. and one. Who would have thought that the Giants could be potentially 7-1 and one eight weeks into the season? I, I mean, look, I, I mean, I got to give the Giants credit. I know I picked against them in this matchup against Seattle. But, bro, I didn't expect them to be at this point seven weeks, eight weeks into the season. And no one did. Not even Giants. And, 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 and you know, I, I got to give you credit. You know, really, Brian Dable in his first season as the head coach has been phenomenal. And not only that, I, you know, I, I know we don't focus a lot on the coordinators here, but I think Martin uh, – What's the guy's name? He he's a, he was the defensive coordinator for the Ravens uh, for the last couple of years. Oh Ended up my going god! The they just talked about uh, him Martin, before we started recording. It, it's um, I think it's a uh, Wink Martindale or something like that. Something Probably, like that, yeah. Yeah, and you know his first season as a defensive coordinator with the Giants. I mean, he has been solid so far this year. I mean, when you look at the Giants' defense, bro, they are. I wouldn't say they're like you know on the same par as like the Bills. But no, but not, they've been consistent. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like that's the thing for me is as long as they're consistently holding teams to fifteen to twenty points a game, that's the reason why they're competitive in these games. And to Daniel Jones's credit, in this season in particular, he hasn't been as turnover prone, not in this season. And I think that they've done a very good job in effectively giving Saquon touches, not only in the run game but in the passing game as well. And the only thing that I think that's going to keep them in this game is if they're not turning the ball over and if their defense does what they need to do. You know, that's what it's going to be. And as far as I see it, I think that the Giants could turn the ball over here. And I am basing that off of what Seattle did against Justin Herbert and the Chargers last week. Because let's face it, the Chargers, you know, there was definitely some potential with them this year, but man, they've been just destroyed by injuries. And 
you could tell like that team is just not in rhythm. And maybe Seattle just caught them in a bad week, maybe a week before the bye, because I think the Chargers are on a bye in yeah, week eight. Are. So, you know, maybe it was just kind of that point of circumstance. But overall, man, I think this is going to be a great game. I think it's going to be a fantastic game between the Giants and the Seahawks. And I mean, I definitely didn't have it on my radar, you know, at the beginning of the year, knowing that the Giants and the Seahawks would be this good. But man, they are really kind of living up to expectations here early in the season. So we'll see what happens. But man, I'm, I'm just kind of watching this Bucks game. I, have you been Yo, I'm, I'm the same thing. I'm distracted. Dude, the Bucks have literally screwed themselves with all of these fourth quarter penalties. They got bailed out by a crappy, once again, roughing the passer call. Again, he just let the ball go. He was already in midair in terms of the defender. What would you like a 200-plus human being to do when he's already taken flight? This, these are horrible calls. I know, because the whole... Man, it's so, he can't land on the quarterback and sh- come on, man! Like and, he's already and, in the air. <laughs> it's like that's what happens, though. Ooh, I, bad I, call by Leftwich for the two point conversion. That oh, was bad. They, they didn't get it. Nope, they called a draw play and then B- Baltimore just blew it up at the line of scrimmage. That was horrible. Oh man! Oh geez! Blew I, I it got, right up. Yeah. Ooh. Bad call. I actually didn't mind. Listen, they're on the one yard line. Maybe do you, you go give I it to formation? Lenny? You don't give it a white. Maybe do you go I formation there? Yeah, I mean, if you go under center, I feel like you get a little bit more push. But I mean, for the fact that you had Godwin in motion right there in the flat, it's not a pick play necessarily because the safety goes over. If you give it to Godwin in the flat, he's got at least a yard or two to stretch for it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as of right now, just where we're at, I know you guys are just listening to it. You guys will know the score, you know, when this drops tomorrow, but. What it's twenty seven twenty two with like fifty some seconds left. Obviously, Tampa's gonna go for the the onside kick onside here. Onside kick, but, dude. It, you've been kind of watching the game like throughout like our segments, right? Yeah. They're in trouble. That Bucks defense is bad. Baltimore ran all over them in the second half. I mean, it was ten to three at halftime. And not only that, bro. Man, this Bucks offense. Man, it's been a snooze fest for them. That whole third. I mean, they put up 20 some points, but again, it's not necessarily the most impressive thing in the world. They go on large stretches where they can't get anything moving. They can't convert on third down. And I got to be honest with you. Tom has not looked good in this game. No. Tom has definitely looked off. Yeah, but Uh, he's been hurried at least seven, eight times in this game alone, particularly this fourth quarter. He's been taking a beat and he got sacked, I think, on that fourth, on that uh, third down play where he got hit by Justin Houston. Dude, he is struggling. Yeah, I I mean, you know, it's getting to the point where I think the team is just getting beaten down by the fact that they just can't get anything consistently going on the offense. And to me, it really does start in the offensive line. And I mean, to be fair, to the Bucs' credit, they were running the ball pretty effectively in the the first quarter. It's over. Kicked it right to him, the onside kick, literally right to likely. Oh, likely scored a touchdown earlier in the game, too. Yeah. He had a good game. Man. Oh, well. Well, well that's a I final. Mean, I mean, we might as well transition to it now, now that the game is pretty much over. Um, yeah. The, well, what what is there to say, bro? So, yeah, let's just dive right into it. Uh, we got the Ravens and the Bucks. Um, the game has now gone final. So, we got a 27-22 a to 22 final score here. Um, 
like we were just talking about earlier, um, it was 10 to three at halftime. The Bucks had a relatively decent start, but then the Ravens just go on an absolute tear in the second half, putting up 24 points and, you know, really just effectively running over that Bucks defense. And Kevin, it, it is kind of safe to say that this vaunted Bucks defense, as far as their run defense, it is not the same compared to the it's last not what it of once years. was. Mm-mm. And man, when you look at, when you look at the Bucks, I mean, they're sitting at a three and five record. I think this is the first time that Tom's ever been two games under 500 in his career. Maybe just through like the first eight games. I think this is maybe the first time that he's ever come face to face with this, but yeah, man, you know, Kev, I'm just going to kick this one to you uh, with the Ravens beating the Bucks on Thursday night. How would you assess the game? And do you think the Bucks can salvage this season knowing the way that they played the last couple of weeks? I mean, the Bucks we knew were a struggling team, an injured team as well, because most of their secondary was either out or just not available for this game. Um, you're looking at the box score, and obviously, you know, Kyle and I didn't necessarily, well, I didn't see the first half. I was out running errands, going grocery shopping and stuff. Uh, by the way, guys, going to Publix after 8 p.m., perfect time. Just in case anybody was wondering, absolute perfect time. No one's there. They're restocking the shelves. I don't got to wait for anybody. I don't got to look for products. It's like right there. But anyway, um, I'm looking at this and I'm just saying, I see two numbers here, 231 versus 44. In case you were wondering, that is the running yards per team. And take a guess who's got 231. The Ravens. Gus Edwards has 65. Kenyon Drake had 62. Lamar Jackson had 43. Devin Duvernay had 33. Justice Hill had 28. And then we have the Bucks, 44 rushing yards, 2.9 per carry. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, well, didn't we just say that the Bucks were down? Da, 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 da? Yeah, it was 10 to 3 at halftime. Once again, another instance to where they abandoned the run game way too early. Tom Brady's getting hit. Tom Brady's getting sacked. Pressure, the offensive line, the penalties. I mean, you name it. These are not excuses. These are facts. The Bucks did not look disciplined in that fourth quarter. They looked absolutely atrocious. Tom Brady was roasting them on that drive before this last one where they had to end in a field goal because they were holding and then you had a, what was it, a legal shift or something like that. Regardless, false the point is... False start. False, false start, start. False start. Excuse me. You're, you're just looking at this and saying they just... They, there's, there's nothing you can do. It's one of those games. It's just they were falling apart at the seams. Tom didn't look good this game. The running game didn't look good. The play calling was questionable. I mean, for God's sakes, we're talking about the greatest quarterback of all time. And this is probably the first time he's gone through adversity like this. Like Kyle said, but this is potentially the first time in his career he's ever been two games under 500 this far into the season. And it's like now people are starting to see what it's like when you put a good player with a bad surrounding cast or supporting cast. This is normal. And we've been saying this for years for so many other teams. You can have the best quarterback in the world, but if the running game isn't there to assist and take pressure off, if the offensive line isn't there to keep them upright and protected, this is what is going to continue to transpire. The time of possession. Baltimore had the ball way longer than Tampa. Third down conversions. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It just, what are the Bucks supposed to do? You lose to a bad team in Carolina. You go on short rest and you come home and you're playing against the Ravens, who are also kind of up and down in certain points of the season. And they just absolutely run all over you. The Buccaneers were one of the best rush defenses in the league over the last five seasons. And you get blown out by 231, 231 rushing yards, Kyle. That's like, those are Madden numbers. Those are like collegiate numbers. And it was like, even all across the board. Now, I know that, you know, Justice Hill ended with 28 and the top rusher had 65. But I mean, everybody was averaging 
over four yards per carry. Justice Hill was at seven yards a carry. Duvernay at 16 and a half. Lamar Jackson at 4.8. Kenyon Drake's 8.9. Gus Edwards, 5.9. They were getting massive chunks per run. That's huge. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They were able to keep the ball away from the freaking Buccaneers. They drained the clock, time of possession, like I had stated. So outside of Mike Evans having 123 yards, most of it coming off of a 51-yard reception, the Buccaneers just could not move the ball. Julio Jones looks completely different since coming back from injury. I mean, we're looking at Chris Godwin. Thank God he had six for 75. But again, between Godwin and Evans, they had 22 targets. That's the majority of the offense. The next supporting cast in terms of having the most targets was Cade Otten. I don't even know who the hell that guy is. It must be a backup third string tight end or something because ain't nobody else was getting open. So the Bucks are struggling in multiple phases. They're one in three at home. They are now out of first place in the division. I don't necessarily know if they can salvage it unless this offensive line decides to wake up. Similar to the Colts issues, they have a good supporting cast around them in terms of on paper, but they can't get it together. So I know that the Bucks defense will turn around when they get some healthy players back. I'm not worried about that. It's the offense. We've been saying it's the offense for weeks. And until they protect Tom Brady and they start to run the ball, I don't know, man. We're talking about Byron Leftwich, who is regarded as one of the better play callers since Tom has been in Tampa. He hasn't looked very good this season, and they have not been addressing that run game. It looks like they've been getting worse and worse every week, and they are last in yards per carry this season. doesn't look like they're changing because they're always playing from behind. So unless they get a little bit of a change in how they're going to play call the system, I think that the Bucks are going to continue to struggle, and I think that this could potentially could be Tom Brady's last year. Yeah, I mean... You pretty much nailed it on the head. I mean, when it comes to the Ravens and the Bucks game, I mean, we did pick the Ravens to win this game, and I think it was pretty simple, the reason why that we picked the Ravens over the Bucks, We just don't have faith in the Bucks' offense to be able to put up points. And I understand that there were 22 points scored by Tampa in this one, but there were large stretches of that game where they just couldn't move the ball. They couldn't convert on third down. They had to punt it back to the Ravens. And there were multiple times where Brady looked frustrated, he just looked like he was completely done with how the offense was performing. I mean, he is getting really frustrated. I mean, it's not just like where he's getting slightly annoyed anymore. I mean, it's plainly visible that he's just fed up with the lack of consistency on the offensive side of the ball. And I mean, Kev, they lost three straight games. And, you know, to me, this is a toss up game because obviously you have to respect Lamar Jackson and just the threat that he brings offensively just with his ability to be able to stretch plays with his feet. But man, I'm looking at these games with the Bucks. Man, they probably should have beaten the Steelers. They sure as shit should have beaten the Panthers. Then you lose to the Ravens at home. Granted, it is on short rest, but you know, sitting at a 3-5 and five record, I know we were kind of talking about it last week. These guys are in trouble. The Bucks are in real trouble here. And when I look at the Bucks' remaining schedule here, let's just go over the next couple of weeks. They got to play the Rams at home on November 6th. Then they play the Seahawks, which that is not going to be an easy game because the Seahawks have actually been somewhat of a decent team this year. And then you got the Browns. And then you have a divisional game against the Saints uh, the week after. So, you know, just based off of how the Bucks have been playing this year, these games are not easy ones. Had this been the Bucks team from last year, I would say that the Bucks would easily win at least three or four of these games. But I'm looking at that slate with the teams that I said that they're going up against. They might be lucky to split, you know, two of those games. You know, it might be two and two after 
uh, the, that four to five week stretch that I brought up. And you know, when I look at the Bucks offense, I, I just keep focusing on the offense because Kev, I think you were hundred percent correct when it came to just the amount of injuries that the defense was dealing with. They just weren't prepared with the personnel that they had just because so many starters were out of the lineup for the Bucks going into that Ravens game. But offensively, man, this team just hurts to watch. I mean, they got off to a decent start. They got a touchdown in the first quarter. I think that was actually the first time that they scored a touchdown in the first quarter of the entire season. I mean, you're eight weeks in and you score your first touchdown in the first quarter. That's crazy. Like, you know, that should have taken place probably a month and a half ago. But, you know, here we are. And, Kev, you know, you're exactly right with the Bucs not being able to run the ball effectively. But that's just because the offensive line can't protect Tom and they can't open up run lanes for Leonard Fournette and the boys in the running back group. And, you know, that's why the Bucs are in last place when it comes to running the ball. I don't know if it's an issue of play calling per se. I think it's a confidence issue. The offensive personnel know that the offensive line cannot open up run lanes for Leonard Fournette. And then when they're going back to pass, well, let's face it. The defense knows that the Bucs are probably going to pass the ball more times than not just because they know that the run game has not been effective for them this year. And they have no reason to really stack the box that heavily outside of maybe first and second down because they know on third down, if it's anything past like a third and five, you know, going to like a third and 10 when it comes to the down and distance. I mean, the defense... They could drop seven back in coverage, and then the four pass rushers could just peel their ears back, and they're just going to run straight for Tom. And I know that he got sacked three times in this game, but I think you know sacks don't really tell the whole story here. There were many times where Tom was getting pressured, where he was getting hurried, where he had to get the ball out quick just because, I mean, let's face it, that Baltimore pass rush was on him multiple times throughout that game. And I just think it's getting to the point where Tom is just fed up with just the lack of effectiveness and the lack of consistency that this offense is able to do. And to be fair to Tom, he's lucky that he only has one interception this year. And he got away with some in that Ravens game. And it's not the first time there were some passes against Carolina last week where he got away with some, but had Tom been turning the ball over two to three times in some of these games, I mean, these games would look absolutely worse than what the results have been the last couple of weeks. I mean, there would have been a good chance that Tom turned the ball over twice against Carolina last week that Carolina could win that game by 30 points. And more than likely had that same type of outcome played itself out against the Ravens where he turns the ball over a couple of times. The Ravens probably put up damn near 35, 40 points in this game. So he is kind of helping out the team by not turning the ball over and making things worse. But I just think Tom is just in a situation where he can't get this team out of a rut. And I think it really just kind of goes bad to the offensive line. But I have to say, Tom did not look good in this game. There were some passes that he missed that probably should have been completions, some of which should have been touchdowns. And I just don't know how they're going to be able to get back into a rhythm until the offensive line issues are corrected. And I don't know if they are going to be at this point. We were talking about lowering the expectations when it came to the Bucks last week after they lost to the Panthers. And I think... You know, we're going to have to keep lowering those expectations. You know, two games under 500. They're no longer in first place in the NFC South. And I don't know if there's really any sort of viable path here for them to really get on a hot streak. Just because the personnel issues, I think, are too deep at this point. 
we are eight weeks into the season. So this is technically we're getting to that halfway point of the season. So maybe they could look back these first two months of the year and just put them in the rearview mirror and then just absolutely turn it up in the second half of the year. But I don't see it. They got to show me something first before I could even believe a notion like that. And I'm just going to round it out with this. I'm like, they're in trouble. They are in deep trouble. And I never envisioned this happening. I knew that there were some issues with the offensive line. I did not think it was going to be this bad, but here we are. What are you gonna, what, what are you going to say, man? I know he's your boy. I know that seeing him struggle sucks. Trust me. It, you know, watching your favorite player play on a on a deteriorating team or on a team that can't perform is is painful. He's not especially the only because God, God. I I know. I was going to say God. it's like I understand the pain because it's like you want him to succeed and you know that he has a supporting cast around him like we know that Julio Jones isn't what he used to be, but you have Julio Jones, you have a Godwin, you have an Evans, you have a Fournette that you convinced to come back. You have the same coordinator. You have a, a defensive-minded head coach. I know it's not the same as Bruce Arians, but low-key, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this out of just curiosity. I know we've been on this topic for a while, so this will be my last point. Do you think the change in culture maybe is to blame for this you know, lack there of a success on the offense because you went from an offensive-minded, brilliant guru in Bruce Arians, I know that him and Tom didn't get along all the time, to now a defensive-minded head coach who did not have a lot of success as a head coach in his previous endeavors in New York. Do you think that maybe that personnel change made a difference? I wouldn't say it would be significant. Maybe it had a small impact. Here's what I think are probably the biggest... I guess, factors you would say. I think, well, first of all, the offensive line issues. You know, th- that's yeah, we've the, talked about that for weeks. It's been very, we've been very extensive in that regard. But I have to say this, and I, I haven't really kind of gotten to this point yet. I know it's been talked about in the media for the last couple months or so. Tom has been taking some time off, you know, throughout the weeks leading into some of these games where he's missed some He's missed some of the OTAs. He missed some of the warmups. He's been missing practices here and there, but he's always shown up for game day. I think to me, I can't say really the culture has changed, but I just think that it's not the same because I, I keep running back to the freaking offensive line, bro. I a part of it is Tom. A part of it is Tom to a certain extent. And, I, you know, to me, you could really start to question whether or not how much he's bought into this team this year. And I, I think when it comes to his overall frustration, especially with the offensive personnel, you could tell that he's very frustrated. But I don't really see any sort of decline in his ability to play the quarterback position. I see an inability to just, you know, be effective. But I, I don't think it's because of him per se. I think that he he's could part play of better. the pieces. He's not. He, he he's can play not better. Solely responsible. Exactly. He can play better. But I think that there are some. I think that there are some factors that he can't control, that are leading to the result of what we're seeing week in and week out with the Bucks. The culture part is a, is an interesting topic for me though because, it's not something that I discredit. And there there has been. I would say that things have been shaky with Tampa since really them losing to the Rams last year in the NFC divisional round. Tom said he was going to retire. Then he comes back. And then Tom's dealing with all the personal stuff in his personal life on top of it. And I think that that definitely has a factor to me that that's, that's definitely a factor. And I think 
had the Bucks been playing probably a little bit better, then I don't think it would have had that much of an impact. But I think, you know, with him going out there week in and week out and them losing three straight games, it really just kind of becomes a magnifying point. And I understand when it comes to the personal issues, we don't really kind of go into those just because that's that's private. But I'd be an idiot to say that that does not have any sort of impact when it comes to him personally. I mean, that is, I mean, you know, when you're potentially losing your family, you know, over a potential divorce, I mean, that is not an easy situation to go through. And I think given the opportunity or given the choice, we'll see how the rest of the year plays out with uh, with them and the Bucks. But I think there's a very good chance that Kev, I, I am kind of starting around to the point where this might be his last season. And I wouldn't want I to did. come back to a team that's as dysfunctional as this has been. And, you know, who's to say that coaching staff is even going to be there next year just because of how bad they're performing. I mean, I know that at the end of the day, they are used to winning because of the last three seasons and being competitive. But I mean, the only reason, let's be honest, they're at this level is because Tom Brady's in Tampa. And if he leaves, it may be time to jump ship for everybody. And I'm not saying yeah. that because it's like, you know, it's the cool thing to do, but this is why Julio is on a one-year deal. This is why Leonard's on a one-year deal. This is why uh, Shaquille Barrett signed like a two- or three-year deal in terms of you know what he could maximize. He knew Tom was only going to be there for a short time, so we'll see what happens, but I feel like we've been on this for a while, and I know that yeah. we do have one more game to cover, and that's going to be the unfortunate Sunday night game, and I say unfortunate because the Packers have to play the Bills, and we all know how the Packers have played, and we all know how the Bills have played, so Kyle... I'll hop this one right to you. With the piss-poor performance that the Packers have put on for seven weeks of the season, do you think they have any chance, even a sliver of a chance, to beat Buffalo in Buffalo? No. I'm just going to be <laughs> flat out honest. No. The Bills are probably going to run away with this game. Uh, simply just because, let's face it, when it comes to Aaron Rodgers and the Packers' offense this year, it's been kind of shameful. And it's just because of the chemistry issues that I've seen between Aaron Rodgers and the young receivers. I mean, Kev, we were talking about uh, the Packers game last week, and we were talking about how Aaron Jones is the most targeted receiver out of the entire bunch of what the Packers field for a wide receiving core. Aaron Jones is a running back. And you could probably say probably the next closest person is Alan Lazard, simply just because Alan Lazard has been there for the last couple of years. But... Outside of that, when it comes to Romeo Dobbs and Christian Watson, we can't even say Randall Cobb in there anymore because he suffered an ankle injury and he's going to be out potentially for the rest of the year or he's going to come back probably in the later stages of December. But this offense just cannot get things together. It's kind of very similar to what we've seen with Tom Brady and the Buccaneers just because they just can't get anything consistently on the offensive side of the ball. And I have to give credit to the Packers' defense because the Packers' defense has been able to keep them in these games. But when it comes to their offense, they start out pretty decent in the first half, but when it comes to the second-half adjustments, they just cannot get anything on third down. And they end up punting the ball back to the other team, and the team they're going up against goes on a run, and the Packers just can't match it, or they just can't get back into a rhythm. And, you know, it is kind of sad to see just because Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks we've ever seen in NFL history. But you can only do so much when the pieces around you are not doing their jobs as effectively as they should. And you tie that in with the fact that Aaron Rodgers has been a little 
a little bit more turnover prone this year than in years past. He's getting pressured more constantly. It just seems to be a revolving door of issues related to this team. And they're going to have to find a way to snap out of it. But I do not think it's going to be this week. The Bills are too good of a team. You know, the Bills are coming off of a game against the Chiefs where in arguably probably the biggest game of the year, they go on the road to Arrowhead and pull out a dub. Granted, it was a very close game. They won that game by, I believe, four points. But overall, you know, I think the Bills have a very good chance to put up 30, 35 points in this game. And knowing what their defense can do, I think that they can limit Aaron Rodgers and that Packers offense to under 20 points. So to me, I think this is going to be a runaway of a game. You know, this is a Sunday night game. It's going to be a primetime game. Everybody's eyes are going to be glued on their TVs here. But I think it's going to be just an absolute annihilation by the Bills. I wouldn't be surprised if Josh Allen goes for 300 yards passing and has three touchdowns. And, you know, Stephon Diggs and Gabriel Davis and Dawson Knox, I mean, these guys have been big this year so far. I mean, all three of them, respectively, had huge moments in that Chiefs game. And there's a very good chance that they could replicate a very similar performance against the Packers just because I think the Packers are going to be on their heels just because the offense isn't going to be able to move against that Bills defense. So, you know, I want this game to be competitive. I want it to be a fun one to watch, an entertaining game to watch. But I think the Bills are going to smash them here. If I had to say, I'm going to say the Bills win this one like 34-17. to 17. I think this is going to be a three-possession dub for the Bills. You know, the Bills would probably jump up to a 6-1 and one record. The Packers would be on a four-game losing streak. They'd be in a 3-5 and five record. And at this point in the season, you know, you're eight weeks in. You're at a 3-5 and five record. You got to contend with the Vikings, who are currently sitting at a five and one record. I don't think they're going to be able to catch up, unless they really turn things around in the second half of the year, which at this point is really kind of hard to see. I think the Packers are screwed here. You know, Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks ever, but I don't think he's going to be able to pull him out of this one. So, I mean, when it comes to this game, I got the Bills all day in this one. This is going to be a runaway of a game. I got nothing to add to that. The fact that this game is nationally televised is absolutely embarrassing. The schedule has been atrocious this year in multiple facets, not just on Thursday night, but some primetime games have been pretty bad. Um, I know it's obviously planned out prior to the season based off of expectations. You see Aaron versus Josh Allen, and you got you to gotta put it on TV. But, I mean, this is, this is when you have to leverage that that NFL power and shift some games. If you were to put the Giants in the Seahawks game at night, I feel like that would have been a lot cooler. I know it's a lot easier said than done. I know it's not necessarily possible. Uh, we've seen games get flexed later in the season because of relevancy, like playoff games and stuff. But, you know, I know it's not necessarily something that can happen. But anyway, back to the analysis of the game. You have a team that's struggling on third down versus the league's best defense. You have one of the most high-powered offenses going up against a middle-of-the-pack defense. You have a mediocre running game in terms of Green Bay's rush game going up against one of the most stout rush defenses in the league. You stop me when I'm wrong. You know what I'm saying? Aaron Rodgers has been turning the ball over in impromptu times throughout the rest of the season. And you're looking at it saying the Buffalo Bills know how to get the ball away from quarterbacks in the most, in the most important times. I mean, Patrick Mahomes throws an interception to a diving corner in the fourth quarter to seal them the game uh, last week, or two weeks ago, should I say. There is nothing this Buffalo team can't do. They're good on special teams. They capitalize on the defensive end. They know how to get to the quarterback. They know how to cover. And the best part about this is some of their defense still isn't healthy. Obviously, you have Micah Hyde out for the year. Poyer's been hurt. You know, Tredavious White has been hurt. They're not even at full capacity. The offensive line has been hurt. 
just wait. This Buffalo team is getting acclimated, getting their legs underneath them, and some would say they might be the best team in football, and I'm one of those people. But when they start to get those those injured players back, some of those key star playmakers, this team is going to run away with the league more than they already have. This game's in Buffalo, prime time. Josh Allen cannot be stopped. The defense is going to absolutely swarm and smother Aaron Rodgers. I think this game, I agree with Kyle. It's not going to be close, and I think this game is going to be 100% a route. If this goes upwards of 35 to 40 points, I wouldn't be surprised, like Kyle said, if the Packers don't even scrummage up 20. So Buffalo all day. They move on to 6-1, and one, and Green Bay continues to fall. Both old quarterbacks in the league just look to be on some crappy teams at crappy points in their careers. But I will say, Aaron Rodgers did this to himself. When you hold a team hostage for $50 million a year, knowing that your number one priority should have been, let me take a pay cut so that Devontae Adams can come back, it's not a good look for you, bro. You knew this was going to happen. So I don't want to hear you complaining. I don't really care what you have to say. We know that you have the talent. We know that your resume speaks for itself. But in terms of greed... This is on you, dude. Tom Brady came back knowing that this team was going to come back together. It's unfortunate that injuries ended up plaguing them to what they are right now on the offensive line. But other than that, Tom had a better situation in Tampa. Tom had better personnel, obviously. So the fact that they're struggling is kind of worse. But with Aaron Rodgers, when you literally, like I said a couple seconds ago, hold a team hostage. I'm going to retire if you don't pay me. I want to trade if you don't play if you don't pay me. You, you, you threw a hissy fit. You have your money. You play on a shit team. Congratulations. Bills are going to smoke you on prime time, and you guys are going to drop to 3-5, and five, and the Vikings are going to run away with the division. I know some people said in our comments on social media, R-E-L-A-X, like he said a couple years ago, relax, and they came back and ended up winning the division. That's not the case this year. They don't have the team that they had that year. They don't have the offense that they had that year. Aaron Rodgers isn't as poised as he was back in the day. I have no faith in Green Bay. I think this game is going to be kind of a snooze fest. For any Green Bay fans, I wouldn't even watch it. Move on to the next week and see if you can come back. Because this game, it ain't it, bro. Kev, I, I got to ask you, this is just kind of like just a little tangent question here. Do you believe, like, when it comes to the skill set of Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, just because they are some of the older quarterbacks in the league, do you still believe, like, their skill set could, like, if they were playing on just a decent team, would still be at the top of, top of the league? As far I think as it would depend on the, I, th- I think it would depend on the situation. Um, I think if you were to insert Tom Brady into a competitive team with an offensive line, I think he'd be fine. Aaron Rodgers as well. Except what what's weird to me is both men, both quarterbacks have their toxicity traits, right? Tom Brady is one of those people that yells at his offensive line very aggressively. He's one of those people that gets in your face, and he, you know, he's deemed a really good leader. But in a lot of cases, especially people cases like myself, I deem that as a bad teammate. And then you have Aaron Rodgers ridiculing coaching staff, ridiculing players, coming up after practice saying we need to do better. The younger guys need to step it up. It, they, they do it in different ways. But again, at the end of the day, that's kind of toxic within a clubhouse or should I say a locker room? Because it just it doesn't make people feel like they want to support you. It doesn't make people rally behind you when you struggle. So I do agree if they were on better teams and by better, I mean better protected teams. It may be a completely different story, but uh, at the end of the day, they're both struggling in instances where they shouldn't, but uh, we've talked about this for God knows how long. I'm just, Offensive I'm, lies are pivotal. I'm just going to just round it up with this point, and then we'll move on to uh, the Jamar Chase news. To me, Kev, like, 
Aaron Rodgers is coming off of a season last year where he threw 37 touchdowns and four interceptions. Like, phenomenal. Brady threw 43 touchdowns to 12 interceptions, threw for like 5,300 yards, and at the time was a 44-year-old quarterback and outdid everybody essentially in their primes when it comes to just overall stats. To me, the way that I see it, even though that these guys are older, I mean, you put them in a situation where they're able to just do their job effectively. These guys are like probably two of the top three, four quarterbacks in the league. Or top five, you should say. I mean, to me, even when it comes to Aaron Rodgers, I know like the team with the Packers has been struggling this year. But I mean, overall, I mean, kind of similar to Tom, he's not really actively screwing the team over by like constantly turning the ball over. I mean, he does, he, he has three interceptions. You know, compared to last year, he's only one interception away from matching his interception total from last year, which is a little bit uncharacteristic of him. But even the same thing with Tom, you know, Tom could be making things a lot worse at Tampa if you were turning the ball over consistently. That's the only thing that I could say that Brady and Rodgers are doing effectively this year is that they're not making the critical mistakes of turning the ball over. Are they not converting on third down? Absolutely. Do they have to punt the ball back on fourth down to the other team? Yeah, just because they aren't converting and extending drives. They're not converting third downs and extending drives, but I think that both these guys are still like, I think that they're still fine. I said still that they they're viable quarterbacks. Load. If they were to hit the market today, if they were to both opt out, they'd get picked up immediately. Oh, 100%. There's no question. Oh, 100%. And, 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 and people would make moves. And that, that says a lot. Because if people were to ask, you know, like we did a couple months ago with the Baker over so-and-so, people would still take some of these players in terms of their overall talent. It's because of the systems that they're in right now that are not doing them any justice. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they're not executing. So That's I'll fair. end it on that note because, yeah. you know, they have some negatives in some categories. They have some positives, but they still have to complete passes and execute to make their team successful. And they're not doing that. Yeah. And, you know, we'll see what happens for the rest of the year. You know, it is the first half of the year. There still is some time for both of these guys to bounce back. But you could say with 100% certainty that there's a lot of room left to be desired when it comes to these two guys with Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Because these guys could be a lot better than what they've provided the first seven, eight weeks of the season. So we'll leave it at that. But with that said, we are going to transition to our last NFL segment, and that is going to focus on Jamar Chase here. So obviously when it comes to Jamar Chase, he's one of the best up-and-coming wide receivers in the NFL. He's got a great quarterback to go along with him with Joe Burrow. But it looks like Jamar Chase is going to miss week eight this upcoming weekend and could potentially miss the next couple of weeks just based off of a lingering hip issue that has seemed to bother him for the last couple of weeks that he's been playing through. So Kevin, to kick this one to you with Jamar chase out for week eight and potentially out for the next month to month and a half. How do you think his absence is going to impact the Bengals for the foreseeable future? I think it's going to be huge and I'm not saying huge to where the Bengals are going to lose, but you have to remember in the defensive scheme that you place as a coordinator, you plan to limit or take away options from specific players. Jamar Chase is already not even two years into the league, and he pretty much demands a double team anytime he lines up one-on-one, especially in man coverage. Now you have a less receiver to worry about, and I'm not saying that Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins aren't good targets, but let's be honest. When you have Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and Tyler Boyd lined up at the same time, you can't double somebody because someone's going to be wide open. 
that's why they're able to have the games that they are. Jamar may not have 150 yards every game, but if he were to have 80-something yards, but T. Higgins has a buck 30, Tyler Boyd has 100, and then, of course, you know, Hayden Hurst goes for 60. That is why the team is as successful as it is, because they have to pick their poison. So when you take away a weapon for a quarterback as talented as Joe Burrow, I think that they're going to slightly struggle, because at the end of the day, they are going to miss one of their best receivers, but they have enough talent around them to make it work, at least until he gets back. I know that I've talked about, especially in our last short and TikTok, that they're, they're, they have a favorable schedule coming up with the Browns, the Steelers, the Titans. And if I'm not mistaken, it's also against the Panthers. They can make it work while he's gone. Kyle, what's the what's the uh, diagnosis? Is he out for a month, two months? Like I, I saw that he was out, but I didn't get to see how long. Well, he's out for week eight. That's already been reported. So now it's going to be the question of whether or not that he's put on IR. So... From what I've read from Adam Schefter and just kind of the reports surrounding Jamar Chase with this hip issue, he could potentially be out four to six weeks. And this has apparently been an issue that he's been dealing with since week six uh, when they played the New Orleans Saints on the road. So he's been playing through this, I'd say, probably the last week or so. And even like looking back to the game that they had last weekend against the Falcons, I mean, he was extremely effective. But I guarantee you, that one touchdown pass that he had where he kind of caught it along the right sideline, but he landed on his hip. I wonder if that kind of exacerbated aggravated that, it. Yeah. yeah. That issue that he had already had in his hip, but yeah, it's really going to come down to whether he's going to go on IR or not. So all I know is, is that he's out for week eight. They've already ruled him out for that, but there's a very good chance that he could miss several more weeks depending on how the recovery process goes, but I'll let it go back to you. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I didn't really have much to say outside of that because, like I said, when you lose a weapon, it makes your offense a little bit more vulnerable. Obviously, they may want to lean on Joe Mixon just a little bit more just because he is a very versatile running back. And Hayden Hurst has, of course, shown that he could be reliable when his teammates aren't getting separation and they aren't open. But I think the Bengals will be fine. Again, favorable schedule of him missing four to six weeks. The next four weeks are favorable matchups for him, or should I say for them? So they could end up coming out of this three and one. In my opinion, they should be four and oh. So if he were to come back in the later half of that uh, of that injury, in terms of if he were to hit the five, six week mark, I think that that is when the schedule will start to get just a little bit tougher because they have some harder opponents at that point. But I do believe that the Bengals will be fine. Um, he will be missed, but I think that Joe Burrow is a good enough quarterback to make up for it. And uh, I think they're talented enough on offense to make sure that they'll be fine. Yeah, I think they're going to make adjustments. I mean, look, you know, teams go through a bunch of injuries every single year, and you have to be able to adjust, and it is next man up in the NFL. And that's going to be kind of put to the test, I think, when it comes to the Bengals this upcoming weekend, uh, when they go up against, actually, I take that back, they played the Monday night game uh, against the Browns. Yeah, so, against the Browns. So, you know, this will actually probably be a good time to be able to kind of test some different formations, you know, see who's going to be put into certain spots and see who can excel and who maybe doesn't necessarily play up the snuff, but just to kind of kick it to how I think it's going to impact the Bengals. I think it's going to be minimal. I don't think this is going to have a potential to be really significant in a negative fashion for the Bengals here. And let's face it, you know, when you look at Joe Burrow specifically, obviously like Jamar Chase is his guy. I mean, they were boys back at LSU and they've been able to maintain the connection as they've transitioned both into the NFL and obviously, you know, his presence is going to be missed just because, I mean, based off of that game against the Falcons last week, I mean, they were running and gunning. And it's really one of the first few times that we've seen the Bengals really get into a rhythm offensively just because at the beginning of the year, 
this team was struggling. Joe Burrow was getting sacked. They were turning the ball over. They had a difficulty scoring points, but they've seemed to finally rectify those issues offensively. And now this kind of looks like the team that we kind of expected coming into the year. And, you know, when it comes to Jamar Chase not being in the fold, I definitely expect that Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins and Joe Mixon are going to be huge points of emphasis here. These guys are going to have to essentially carry the offense alongside with Joe to keep this team viable. And I wouldn't be surprised that if the Bengals defense is able to maintain the performances that they've had the last couple of weeks, I think that's going to be, I guess, a positive element for them moving forward. But I would say just as like just a minor point here, don't take this out of context. You know, I think there's going to be a little bit of added pressure on Joe's back, knowing that his number one target is not going to be there. So Joe's going to have to elevate his game. He's going to have to get more comfortable with obviously throwing to guys like Tyler Boyd and T Higgins, which I don't think is going to be that big of an issue. It's just, you know, moving guys around and putting them in different slots uh, in the offense. But overall, you know, like you said, Kev, they've got a pretty favorable schedule here for the next month. And if Jamar's held out for a month, so be it. If he goes on IR, he's at least going to miss four weeks minimum. You know, that just comes to the territory of being on IR. And that would mean if he were to come off on IR four weeks down the road, he'd be ready to go in the first week of December against the Chiefs. And that, to me, is one of the biggest games that they're going to have of the entire year. So I don't think this is necessary. This is necessarily the worst-case scenario for the Bengals. Obviously, it's going to sting just a little bit early on, but I think they'll be able to get past it. But if they get him back for that battle against the Chiefs, which is going to be a rematch of the AFC Championship game, that would be huge. And I think that he would actually provide a huge spark for the Bengals going into that matchup against KC because they're going to need him if he's available because let's face it the Chiefs are one of the best teams in the NFL this year they've shown it game in and game out and the Bengals need all the personnel that they need it's going to be all hands on deck going up against the Chiefs in that first week of December because that game is going to be lit to put it mildly it's probably going to be one of the games of the year to be quite honest with you but overall I think the Bengals will be fine his absence will be missed but I think that they can work through it that's just how I see it yeah, and before we go into our last topic, um, I think it's pivotal to pay attention. If he's placed on IR by tomorrow, does that count as a missed week since he was already ruled out for this week? Well, if he, like what I'm saying is, if oh, he's put talking, on IR, is it like a will specific... he then miss the Chiefs game? I think there's a deadline before you can put because like if you put someone on IR on Saturday, what does that really do? I mean, obviously he wasn't gonna play; he was already ruled out. Like. Is there a cutoff when you have to put a player on that list? Because if he's put on too late, that means he will miss the Chiefs game. Because that will that means that that fourth week will be the Chiefs game because his IR run or IR period didn't begin until the next week. I mean, I could look up the the rules associated with the IR designations if you want me to real quick, just so we have it. Yeah. Um, because I was thinking about that when you when we were looking when I was reading the report during your take they they said that IR is a possibility but there wasn't an official ruling and I'm like if he's already ruled out I don't think it's going to count if they place him on it I think that they're accepting that he potentially will miss that Chiefs game if they put him on IR don't you think so Well there's even a potential that he could miss 6 weeks Well you know, no of course and I know they're going to well, aim for the, the shorter ladder as most teams do for their star players I mean I'm I'm looking through the list right now of the IR rules. I mean, there's a lot here, but 
Yeah. I, I mean, at I, the end I, of the day, I, I I haven't seen anything as far as when it comes to a specific deadline. If there mm-hmm. is a deadline, maybe it, it it already has passed, and that would mean that he misses time, and he could potentially miss that Chiefs game. Yeah. But I think it's it, it's coming down to whether or not that he's going to be put on IR. Just yeah. because I think has... I think I think you should personally. I, I dude, it's a hip. We need you to last the rest of the year. If we can go three and one or four and zero oh in the next four games, I need you to just worry about rehab and not getting back on the field. If you have that mindset of I could come back earlier, you might force it. If you know you're out for a month, it's rehab, rehab, treatment, treatment, rehab, rehab, treatment. Like you know what I'm saying? Like there's a different mindset when you're officially like no possibility of coming back. You know? Yeah, it's just I think what yeah, like you said with hips, it's kind of tricky. But I, maybe this is just a situation where they just kind of monitor it week to week. Hopefully, and, if it, if he can manage it and play through it again, I don't like to encourage playing through anything like that because a hip he, is a hip. He already That's had. Very he, he already had though. Yeah, and but like was, you said, re-aggravating it that can happen any week. That's why I say put him on IR because if he ends up making it worse than what it is and he misses even more time or potentially is out for the year, then you will feel his absence. A few weeks yeah. you can manage. It's like a band aid. Yeah, and like you said, you know, you coincide that with what their schedule is, you know, for the next month. I don't think that they're going to be in that much danger of like going like one and three Knock in that four for game stretch. Fans, not jinxing it. Yeah, I mean, we've seen some I, teams I, collapse. Can't say nothing. I like the way that they've been playing, though. I agree. So that that Ravens game that they had a couple of weeks ago, look, that's a divisional game. They went on the road. It was a close one. They lost on a game winning field goal. I mean, it happens, but overall, like that offense seems to kind of be hitting its stride, which is, it's, it's honestly about time because the first couple of weeks of the season, bro, they were looking tri- they, like it was rough. It was first, rough to say the least 13 sacks. And you know, you, you had some bad performances against the Steelers and the Cowboys. Like it's not a good look, but yeah, I have to say like that. Joey did me a favor last week for fantasy. Both he of single, us. He single-handedly won me that fantasy game last week because Homeboy put up like 40 points in that game So for fantasy. So he did exactly yeah. what he needed to do. But yeah, man, I mean, I think they'll be fine. But definitely going to hurt, you know, with Jamar Chase not being in the fold. But I think they have the, the requisite pieces to be able to, I guess, weather the storm. And we'll kind of see where it goes from there. But uh, Kev, with that said, we are going to transition to our last topic of the episode and that's gonna be the world series uh the world series starts on friday um when we look at the matchup we got the philadelphia phillies going up against the houston astros when we talk about the phillies the phillies have really been kind of what i would consider a cinderella type of run nobody really expected them to get to this point but here they are they've really overcome all of the odds and they go on the road to play the houston astros and kev like when it comes to the houston astros i mean they've been nothing but just phenomenal this postseason um they've just been lighting it up in every single playoff series that they've had i know there's definitely probably some salty feelings about them beating your boys in the alcs but better team they, bro like, they, like they, i said they, earlier they, on they are, it doesn't they, matter to me they earned it they definitely earned that they win did. over the yankees so cannot blame them for that but i think this is actually going to be quite a compelling matchup the way that i see it so overall kev to kick this one to you we got the Phillies and the Astros in the World Series. Who do you think is going to win this series when it's all said and done? 
Who do I think? I'm hoping it's the Phillies. For that is the only salty part. I would like them to lose. I would obviously like the Astros to lose. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because of experience and because of multiple players on this team being from that 2017 cheat team. I mean, championship team. I think that they will find a way to muster up at least two or three games. Um, I think Houston is poised to win game one. I think Justin Verlander versus Aaron Nola is a no-doubter for me. Nola had a very rough game against the Padres in his last outing. He gave up six runs. I know Justin Verlander looked very suspect against his two first opponents and being the Yankees and the Mariners, but I really do think that at any point he could turn it on and he'll be fine. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, their bullpen showed throughout this postseason that they can hold the lead. And, you know, I know that they had seven runs or something like that given up against the, the, the Marlins, or not the Marlins, the Mariners. And, you know, some games were a little bit clunky and some games were rough, but, you know, you can make the argument that the starters didn't put them in good positions. But the, the bullpen and the offense came in clutch when they needed to in terms of the Astros. So I will say that I think that the Phillies will win this series because I think that the Phillies have that Cinderella run. I think that they have the energy, the, the city, the fans, the people. I just think that Philly is a better team as of right this moment because of everything and adversity that they've gone through, overcoming the gauntlet that they had for St. Louis. And then, of course, them beating Atlanta, the defending champions. And then, of course, going out and beating the Padres in five, which, again, I just did not expect them to go out and mop them like that. Led by Bryce Harper, the pitching staff has been impressive nonetheless over in Philadelphia. I think that Philly hoists up the World Series trophy for the first time since 2008, and I think that they beat the Astros in seven. Kev, I think this is going to be a really fun series, to be quite honest with you. This is a tricky one for me because... There's a little bit of bias when it comes to my pick here. I got to pick the Astros here simply just because, Kev, I don't know if it was the fact that the Yankees batters looked so bad against Houston's pitching staff or if it was just because Houston's pitching staff looked phenomenal. Maybe it's a little bit of both here, but man, Kev, like when it comes to their pitching staff with the Astros, like how would you assess it? Because to me, bro, they were... They were nice against the Yankees. They were ALC. clutch. I, w I, will, I will admit, once again, to show that I'm not a salty fan, there were some beautiful placed pitches in certain places, but at the same time, the Yankees were also swinging at garbage in terms of, at, in terms of plate discipline. But at the same time, they had a lot of movement on those off-speed pitches that locked up the Yankees to where they thought it was going to be a breaking ball, and that thing ended up coming right back inside on some sliders, some change-ups. God, man, some of their curveballs were sitting up at the top of the batter's box looking to be just breaking inside, and then before you know it, it just drops like a rock and sits right at the bottom of the corner of the plate. So, you know, I, the Astros pitching staff is no joke. That's why I give Verlander the advantage in game one, and I think that the pitching staff of the Astros is very competent. But again, I think that the Phillies' offense will surprise a lot of people. It's just a matter of will the Phillies be able to gain the composure with the inexperience of them not being in a situation like this versus the Astros think... I think this is they're going to be their third World Series since they lost. They won in 2017. I think the Nationals they lost fourth. against in this fourth. Is fourth. Fourth. Yep. This is fourth, fourth in six. six years. Yeah. They did the Dodgers. They did. They lost to the uh, the Nationals. I was. I they was. They lost to the it. Dodgers again. Or they, they 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 beat the Dodgers. They lost to the Dodgers. They went to this is their oh this is their fourth year. You're right. You're right. Sorry. Yeah, I can't so, do math. I mean, I mean, dude, they've been on a run. So, I mean, you know, they have. Give, so, you know, when it comes to the Astros, the one thing that I've really been surprised by, 
I mean, outside of the pitching staff, Kev, there were multiple times throughout that ALCS series where the Yankees actually held the lead over Houston, but they showed resilience and they were able to bounce back and get some hits to put some runs on the board and end up coming up with a huge comfort behind victory, not once, but a couple of times in that ALCS series. And that was despite the fact that Jose Altuve didn't necessarily have the best series against the Yankees, but they were able to still find a way to be able to beat the Yankees in advance to the World Series. I think this is going to be a difficult matchup for them, though, because like you said, when it comes to the Phillies, the Phillies were able to put up runs, dude. I remember, I think it was game three or game four against the Padres where, you know, the Padres put up like three or four runs in the first inning, and then the Phillies were able to put up three to four runs to essentially match what the Padres did in the first inning. I think the the Phillies ended up chasing out the Padres starting pitcher within like the first 25 pitches that he threw, which is quite impressive. So to me, like when I look at this matchup, I think this is going to be a phenomenal back and forth matchup simply just because I got to respect what the Phillies can do offensively. It just depends to me on how effective is Houston's pitching staff going to be. If Houston's pitching staff ends up striking out the Phillies like they did against the Yankees, I think Houston wins this one in five games. However, if the Phillies have some plate discipline and they don't swing at garbage like like the Yankees did, I'm sorry, Kev. I, it's if fine, I'm, bro. If I if I'm rubbing like salt in the wounds there, I I do not mean it that way. It's just it's not, it's bro. Just, I promise you. If there was a problem, I'd, I'd say something. It, I tr- I promise you, it's not. It, it's just that like. You know, I mean, there were some games where they put up 17 to 18 strikeouts. Yeah. And there, there's a very good chance that Houston could be able to put up that type of performance individually in some of these games against the Phillies. It's just, to me, you know, are the Phillies going to swing at garbage? And to me, I think that they're going to present a much bigger challenge for Houston compared to any other team that Houston's played throughout this playoff series or throughout this playoff season so far. But... I think when it comes down to it, it's hard for me to bet against Houston just because this is their fourth World Series in six years. Despite that they've had some turnover with some of their personnel over the last couple of years, they've been very consistent. And I think they end up winning this series in in six or seven games. But I really do think that this series is going to be a challenge for them just because I got to respect what Bryce Harper has done with the Phillies. The Phillies have shown me that they could put up runs consistently and they could also win some of those close battles where, you know, you're only winning one run games and it's like a three to four score or a four to three score or three to two score. So the Phillies have shown that they can win multiple ways this postseason, especially against the Padres. And I do believe that, you know, the Phillies are going to have their opportunities here to be able to pull not one, not two, but potentially three games here by I think if it gets to a game seven situation, I got to go with Houston. Cause I'll tell you what, if game seven happens, it's taking place in Houston. It'd be hard to bet against the Astros in that one. Cause I got to say that the atmosphere in Houston would just be absolutely electric if that situation were to take place. But I'm going with the Astros here simply just because I just have a little more faith in them. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I, I understand multiple takes. I understand your point. And obviously, you know, you're going to go with the veterans, like I said. So I'm hoping for my sake that I'm right and I hope the Phillies win. If the Phillies could win in sooner fashion, that'd be great for me and my mental health. But we'll see what happens. Did, did, did you see one of the reports from Philly about uh, the situation with their light poles? Oh, yeah. An adult company sent like, I don't know how many gallons five, of pounds five, of, of loop. 
550 gallons of lube to go on those pause poles. <laughs> like, I mean, they're going to be prepared. Yeah. Because, Philly people still going to riot. So don't matter. Not riot, but, you know, they're going to go nuts where, oh, if the it, Phillies win. If the Phillies win the World Series, bro, they're going to be flipping cars and lighting shit on fire. Yeah, my boy Brian going to be out there and he's going to be sending me videos of basically the city being set on fire. So it is what it is. And like you said, you know, this would potentially be their first World Series win since, what, 2008? That was almost 15 years ago. So I think it's uh, I think it's well-deserved that they end up, you know, getting the dub against the Astros. But, you know, the Astros have been here. They've done that. So I think yeah, it's going to be a very interesting series. So it's going to be an interesting one to cover as, you know, these games take place. But overall, that Kev, that pretty much wraps it up for us today. Yeah. So... I know we kind of dragged out that, that, that buck segment a little bit longer than it probably needed to, but it is what it is. Friendly oh, banter boy. conversation. It's, it's sports, bro. It, it, you can't always be directly like, you know, we don't work for ESPN where we have a cutoff for a time. Like there's not another show coming on. If people don't want to listen, you know, they skip the podcast or they, you know, they turn it off. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's my boy. It's my boy. Got to let it rock. Even when he's down, bro. So go ride or die with the guy. So absolutely, you wouldn't be a fan if if you gave up. So it doesn't make a difference. But guys, that's going to wrap it up for us. We'll be back on Sunday. Um, Obviously, you know, we're going to have plenty of content rolling through the weekend. Aside from today or aside from this episode, we have short form content. Uh, If you're not already doing it, follow us on YouTube. Um, follow us on TikTok, follow us on Instagram. All social media platforms has been absolutely doing incredible in terms of success. We just hit 600 subs on YouTube. So we're making moves in all the right strides. Everything's going great. Our hard work is paying off. The grind of us recording almost every day is is feeling like it's doing good finally. And, uh, you know, Kyle and I are just excited to be here. And uh, we can't wait to see what this podcast continues to produce. Yeah. And, you know, just, just from my end here, like Kev said, appreciate you guys tuning in, whether it's been on the audio platforms or, you know, watching us on YouTube. We definitely appreciate that. Kev, I mean, even the audio numbers have been very solid, you know, the last couple of weeks. So we definitely appreciate you guys tuning in on the audio platform as well, just because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to see some, some people actually paying attention and, you know, giving us a chance on the audio platforms. We definitely appreciate that. Yeah. Um, the traction has been huge. So, you know, shout out to, uh, electric cast. And of course, you know, Greg and those boys, it, it's, it's been, it's been great working with them. They've been very easy going and, you know, always available to answer questions whenever we need to. But again, without their opportunity, they gave us the audio platform would be still consistently averaging anywhere from two to three, two to three plays per episode. And right now we are, we're, we're, we're pretty high up right now. So I'll take it for where I can get it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, like Kevin said, we'll be back next week. We got plenty of content rolling for you guys, short form, medium form, long form, we're just going to be running nonstop here you know, for the foreseeable future and hope you guys tune in uh, to give us a chance. So with that said, take it easy, you guys, and we will see you guys next week. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there.
Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.